All right, well, let's pray. Lord God, thank you for being with us uh, through the last year. Thank you, Lord, for helping us to survive Christmas and New Year's and family and friends. And uh, We pray, Lord, that you'd be with those who are sick. Uh, pray for the Don Gilly household. You'd bring health there. I pray, Lord, for others as well. Also be with those traveling still. And I know Martha's leaving this week. So watch over her as she goes to see King and keep her safe, Lord. And uh, bless our time as we jump into this class. And I pray that those who do have questions would be here and be coming and uh, this would be beneficial for all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So we begin a new series starting today, Why Do You Do That? And it's a a question. Some of you have asked me those questions. And uh, I'm trying. I'm going to try to answer all those, and it may just possibly be. This is going to be a short class of about eight weeks or so, but it just may possibly be that you have a cl- another question that comes up while we're doing this. Let me know that question, and I'll um, I'll do that. I'll t- touch on it if I can. And then also, as you, we have some folks that have been visiting our congregation. I would encourage. I would ask you to encourage them to come. Okay because this is really partly for them, and I'll explain all this in a minute. All right, so let's do this. I got my little clicker. Somebody bought me a clicker, a remote clicker, but it's not on. Oh, it'd probably help if I turned the button on, yes. That's what happens at our house when Anna and I are, we have technical difficulties in our computer, we immediately ask Caleb. And his first answer, did you turn it on? Alright, so this is, before we even get into the class, does this look familiar to anybody? It's a baptismal font, right? Do you know where it actually started out? Heritage Presbyterian Church. I think this was back when uh, the church was still 25th and Chartel. Well, in roundabout ways, it went from Heritage to Minko and went with Brent Lauder from Minko all the way up to Indiana, ended up at Midland, Texas, and we didn't have a baptismal font in Midland, Texas at the time, and so I stripped it down. It had four layers of gunky paint on it, and all white and everything. Got in and pulled all the trim off and worked it out, and then um, made a top, uh, fixed the inside. There was some water damage. It's probably 100 years old. Some water damage on the inside. I fixed it, and then uh, gave it to Providence in Midland, and I was so pleased this week, as I happened to look over there... Um, their pastor, Dagan Mayfield, uh, wrote a review of my book, Our Heads on Straight, and so I was trying to get a hold of him and tell him thank you for writing that review. And I look at the picture on their website, and look what's there. Yay! So that's the other thing I want to tell Dagan is if he ever wants to get rid of that, give it back to me so I can give it back here. So. But anyways, I just thought that was pretty cool. Had nothing to do with the class. All right. Okay. Why do you do that? Why do you do that? I want to know. Yes. All right. This is a class for inquiring minds. So some of the broad categories we're going to look at is worship. Why do you do what you do in worship? Uh, Church government. Some of you asked about uh, deacons and elders and presbytery. And and what's the difference between a deacon and an elder? And knowing the traditions that many of us come from, all those questions make good sense. And so church government... We're going to talk about complementarianism versus egalitarianism. That will be towards the end of the class, or later in the class. Who is John Calvin? I mean, we quote him enough. Kind of 
important for us to talk about who he is, okay? Catechisms, church membership. So those are the broad categories that we're going to cover, okay? So here's the purpose. And if you read the letter this week, you got some of this in the letter. First off, the purpose of the class is to exhibit to those unfamiliar with Presbyterians that we have biblical reasons to do what we do. Even if they're unpersuaded, even if our friends are unpersuaded, at the end, I hope that they will walk away with, well, these people really are trying to be faithful to Jesus and are committed to Scriptures, even if they don't agree with us. If that's the way they walk away, then I will feel like we have succeeded. Okay? That's a big deal for me. I think even if we can't persuade them, if they at least can say, hmm, wow, that's not a Roman Catholic hangover. They're really trying to follow Jesus or something. I've had those statements made in the past. Okay? So, this is why I would, I would like you to invite people who've been visiting to come to this class. Okay? Because there's a lot for them here. But also for you, bom, 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 to help us make disciples. That's what we're always supposed to be about. Right? That's part of Jesus' great commission. Right? Make disciples. Right? I have all authority in heaven and earth. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them... Whatever I've commanded you, lo, I'm with you always. That is, no matter what else, that is part of our main purpose in being, is making disciples. And even life at Heritage, the sign in the fellowship hall, back to the small fellowship hall, that that's part of it. Truth, worship, and Christian love to equip us to make disciples who belong and believe with us as we grow in truth, worship, and Christian love. We cannot forget that we're disciple-making people. That's what we're about, okay? And so this class is to help us be a part of making disciples. And I never forget, and I don't want you to ever forget, 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. When Paul told Timothy, he says, What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The faith is not meant for us to hold on to for our own stingy little selves. It's always meant for us to believe it, to trust, to walk in it, and to pass it on. Right? We're always about passing it on. If we forget that part, we become an ingrown church. All right? And Christian, Christianity has always had a problem with being an ingrown kind of group because we forget that we're, we're also always about passing it on. And that's part of disciple-making. So there's the twofold purpose. Any questions about the purpose of the class before I jump in? I'm in your way, Alan. Okay, so let's begin, we're going to begin with worship, okay, we're going to begin with something about specifically worship, because it actually governs much of what we do, of why we do what we do, okay, and um, we're going to talk about the regulative principle of worship, we're going to start there, but we're going to also cover, not today, but we're going to cover through this part of the, the class, we're going to cover things like United vocal prayers, responsive readings, why do we do those things, our bodies being engaged to worship, why do we kneel, why do we raise hands, why do we stand at scripture reading and prayer and singing and stuff, and why do we sit, those things, our bodies, okay, uh, creeds, all right, why do we use creeds, my mother-in-law came to church one time and she heard us doing the Lord's Prayer and a creed, and she goes, why are you guys like the Catholics? You know, it's a great question to ask. 
So we had a lot to do with the creeds. And so uh, we're going to address why we do creeds. Robes. Bom, bom. That was you asking that one. Yes. And so we're going to do talk about robes. I'll probably talk about clerical college. It has nothing to do with worship for specifically, but we'll talk about that tangentially when we get there. Baptism. Why we baptize, what we do, what's going on there. And communion. Okay? So those are things we're going to cover under the subject of worship as we answer the question, why do you do what you do? So today, we want to begin with the regulative principle of worship. This is, that statement, that title just sounds so ominous. The regulative principle of worship. When we're Presbyterians, we like the ominous. Okay? So... So let's do some Bible reading. Oh, I forgot to bring my Bible in here. I had it too. I was going to bring it. Um, let's go. Everybody go to Leviticus chapter 9. Here's a good thing about Bible apps. I have one. Yes. Leviticus chapter 9, verse 22 to chapter 10. Verse 3, we need to start right here, talking about Nadab, Abihu, and unauthorized fire. Okay, this is at the very beginning. This is after the tabernacle has been established. It's kind of brand spanking new. The priesthood is now being commissioned. Uh, Aaron and his sons are being made the high priests. So Leviticus 9, beginning at verse 22. Can somebody read 22 through, through 24? And then I'll have somebody read... Chapter 10, 1 through 3. Who can do... Okay, Aaron's going to do 9, 22, uh, 22 through 24, and Alan's going to read chapter 10, 1 through 3. So you have a, a very a very stout situation here. You have in chapter nine, you have God actually presenting fire, burning a sacrifice, and then Nadab and Abihu do something, and what do they do? They take up a censer. Censer, by the way, but it had incense in it, and that's a, would have been a visible symbol of offering prayers. But, but what did they do with their censer? They did their own thing. They offered unauthorized fire. The King James says they offered strange fire um, because the Hebrew says strange. Anyways, but it's the idea of an alien. It's something that's, that's out, was not part of what was, um, um, what was supposed to be. It was an unauthorized fire, okay? And so uh, notice what God says through Moses to Aaron. You know Aaron's heart has got to be breaking right now. And he will actually be told not to grieve for his sons in the next few verses. But notice what God says to 
to Aaron through Moses. This is what the Lord has said, Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. So as you read that passage, you read that story, it sounds like, wow, that was really odd. You know, that seems like God is just this angry God. But I want you to realize that the point is, you cannot access God however you want to. Right? All the way through, even our Lord Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one can come to the Father but through me. There's always this uh, specific way of access. You cannot just come the way you want to. Right? And so there's a sense of a, there's a standard. And it's just like this in your home. If those of you who are married, you know you don't approach your wife or your husband just the way you want to. You know, think about Christmas. I mean, this might work at the LaRousse house, but I doubt Bill buying Yvonne a shotgun to go deer hunting with would be a wonderful thing for Christmas. It might be for Bill, maybe. I don't know. Right? He needs to know what Yvonne likes and approach her that way. It's the same thing with the Lord. Okay? And that's what you see here. And the reason why I'm bringing this up because you're already beginning to see a principle, and we could go through tons of, of Scripture on this, but you already see a principle here that there is, a, there is a standard way to approach God. You just can't come any old way. Okay? And so there's a regulative aspect of approaching God in worship. Okay? Any questions about this passage here? Leviticus 9. Okay. So moving on. Let's go to 1 Kings 12. Let me see here. 1 Kings 12. And we're going to read uh, verses 25 through 33. I need some help here. 1 Kings 12, 25 through 33. So I need uh, somebody to read. Yeah, somebody could read. Oh, I'll tell you what, I'll read it. How's that sound? I'll read it. It's a little bit longer. All right. So 1 Kings. Rehoboam has become king of Israel, but he is not as faithful as he ought to be, and God has already told Solomon that because of his own compromise towards the end of his older life, when his foreign wives stole his heart, right? The pagan wives stole his heart. God says, I'm going to take the kingdom and split it. All right? Part of it's going to go north, and part of it's going to go south. I always leave the south in the, in the, under the reign of, of the descendants of David. All right, And so he tells Jeroboam, he tells Jeroboam, he says, I'm going to give you the ten northern kingdoms. And if you will stay faithful to me, then I will prosper you, and I will build you up, and I will strengthen you, and all those things. And I want you to notice what Jeroboam does. Okay, 1 Kings 12, starting at verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem, so now he's up in the northern area built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Jeroboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Jeroboam, king of Judah. Is Jeroboam believing what God has said? No. Okay? So now he's trying to secure the kingdom by his own might. Verse 28, So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. By the way, this sounds like the scene in Exodus when Aaron takes the gold and makes the calves. And so there is a deep connection between here and back in Exodus. 
So the king took counsel and took two, made two calves of gold, and he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold, your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples in high places and appointed priests from among the, all the people. Notice what he's done. He's changed the... Uh, the, uh, the second commandment, he's making an image of Yahweh for them to worship, and he's changing the command about the priesthood. The priest should always be the Levites and the people of Aaron. Now he's changing it to anybody, okay? Um, where did I go? Okay, verse 32. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah. Now he's changing the feast days. The seventh month is a huge day. When you come to the Nehemiah series tonight, you'll hear part of that, why this is important. But the seventh month is the, is the month of uh, Yom Kippur, uh, the, the Feast of, uh, of, uh, of uh, Trumpets, and the Feast of Booze. It's a huge festival month. Jeroboam has changed the month. He's gone from the seventh month to the eighth month. Okay? Um, and he offered sacrifices on the altar, so he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. He placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the fifteenth day in the eighth month. In the month, in the month that he had devised, from where? From his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. Okay, and this, if you've read First Kings and Second Kings. This is the big whammy. Every king, no matter how decent they are in the north, it will say, oh, but they continue to sin after the sin of Jeroboam and it destroyed the people, right? Notice what happens. Jeroboam decides he's going to do his own thing and set it up his own way, devised from his own heart. And God will never be pleased with it. Right? You cannot come to God, you cannot access Him and worship just any old way you please. I mean, that's the principle from Scripture. All right? I'm just giving you two examples, all right? Any questions about Jeroboam and what he had devised from his own heart? Okay. The next one, let's go to Isaiah chapter 1. You're making my heart happy because I hear papers turning. And here I am using an app because I forgot to bring my Bible in. Alright, Isaiah 1. Now when we think about something like the regulative principle of worship or whatever you want to call it, we almost always think of the external. We forget that it actually also includes the internal. Alright, I'm going to say it again. We often think it only includes the external, but it also includes the internal. And here's where you have it. Isaiah 1, 12 through 17. And I am going to ask somebody to read this for me. Somebody read this for me. Okay, David is going to read this. 12 through 17, Isaiah 1.
Now notice, all those actions God has actually commanded. So He does require those things under the Old Covenant. What has made them now something that He cannot stand? There's actually a line in here you need to underline in your Bible so you will always remember this. What is it that has made these things detestable in His eyes? Yes, okay. Vain offerings are vain, right? Look at the end of verse 13. Yes, read it out loud again. Notice that? So life and liturgy have to go together. If the life does not go with the liturgy, then the liturgy sucks. It stinks. Okay? But the liturgy must impact the life. The two have got to go together. That's part of the regulative, regulating, if you will, the regulative uh, principle of worship. The inside as well as the outside. We can't play games with God. Well, we did the Lord's Prayer this week. Surely the Lord has heard me while I'm beating my kids or my wife or whatever. No. In fact, he's even said so in 1 Peter 3 and verse 7. Dwell with your wives in an understanding manner. Treat them as a co-heir of grace so that your prayers may not be hindered. Life and liturgy go together. That's part of the regulative principle. And Sometimes as Presbyterians, we only focus on the external and forget that this other aspect applies as well. Okay? Any questions about this at all? Isaiah 1? Okay. So let's go to the end of Hebrews 12. Somebody will surely say, well, Pastor, you've just been in the Old Testament this whole time. So, Hebrews 12, verse 28 and 29. And somebody read this. Who could read that? Hebrews 12, 28 to 29. David, you'll read that? So notice that we're to come to God with acceptable worship. What does the word acceptable imply? Yep, there's the opposite. There's an unacceptable way and there's the acceptable way. And part of the acceptable way includes what two words that he uses? With what? Yeah, reverence and awe. Okay, so there's this internal as well as this external melded together here. There's more we could use, we could draw from the New Testament. I'm just simply laying out the fact that there really is a regulative principle of worship in Scripture. This is not a fiction that Presbyterians made up just because, you know, we're on and Pesky. We are on and Pesky, but we didn't make it up for that reason, okay? It's okay, you guys can laugh, it's all right. Okay? So there is a regulative principle of worship, and we need to recognize that. I've just given you some samples here so that we do, this does then and ought to govern how we worship. So when somebody asks, you know, why do you do that in worship? You, you might want to start with, well, let's start with this and start possibly with a regular principle of worship, especially in a society that's very, very much about rugged individualism and do your own thingism and all that stuff. This will be, I mean, wildly different for them. Okay. All right. So any questions about the principles before we move on? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. 
Yes, yes. Right. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to talk about it very much. I mean, I've already mentioned whatever is in the Old Testament applies in the New Testament except where specifically changed. Okay, I've already declared that numerous times, okay? So we're actually going to, when we get through some of the things, such as baptism and communion, I'll give some examples, but that'll be a couple weeks down the road. But that is a good question, and that's something to keep in mind. There are lots of, there is lots of continuity, but there's also discontinuity, Okay. The New Testament assumes the Old Testament. So it assumes this, uh, this sense of regulation right here, this regulativeness. But then how does that work out here, here, and here, and here? That's where you work. And we'll talk about some of that in a minute. In fact, I'm going to get to some of the principles here in just a minute. Okay? Yes. Yes, she does. Great question. Hold on, hold your thought. Okay, we're going to get there. I'm not going to mention instance specifically, but hopefully this will work. This this will help work out. So the regular principle of worship. Let's do this. Inside the fence line of Christianity, most traditions, whether Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Protestants, and so forth, most traditions recognize from Scripture that God's worship is regulated and has parameters that define it as Christian and, and as acceptable. Okay. I mean, almost every tradition, the only ones I can think of are very marginal groups, certain forms of uh, Anabaptists and, and a few others that just say there are no regulations, no standards whatsoever. And those are really, really small splinter groups, okay? Almost all, throughout all of Eastern Orthodoxy and Catholicism and, and all forms of Protestantism, we all recognize from Scripture that God's worship is regulated and has parameters that define it as this is Christian worship and that's not. Okay? Does that make sense? So we need to understand that common ground because that will help. Almost all agree that the first principle is what is commanded is required. Alright? What is commanded is required. Almost everybody agrees with that within Christianity. Okay? Again, um, there might be a few who don't. But, but they'd be like two people. Almost all agree with the second principle. What is forbidden is forbidden. Okay? I mean, this sounds really mundane and really kind of like minutiae, but this is really helpful. All right, what's commanded is required. What's forbidden is forbidden. Almost every various traditional stream within Christianity agrees with those two principles. Okay? Does it make sense? Any questions before I move on? This will help, by the way. This helps us to start working on things like incense and other things. Okay? The confusion comes regarding what is not commanded nor forbidden. What is not commanded nor forbidden. That's where the confusion begins to come. Okay? So, regarding what is not commanded nor forbidden. Some will say, if it's not forbidden, it is allowable. Okay? And I could... Name different traditional streams that hold that principle. But they're huge uh, in numbers. 
So if it's not forbidden, it's allowable. Now I want you to think through some examples of how this is from history and up into the present. What are some examples of the, if it's not forbidden, it's allowable? You don't have any ideas? Okay. Okay, all right. Okay, what else? Yes, right. That's an extreme example, but that is an example. Good job, Lee. Yeah, incense would be a incense would fall into here. Is it, if it's not forbidden, it's allowable, right? Okay, what would be another one? Holy water, it's not forbidden, it's allowable. Okay, I mean we could go through a whole list of things, all right? But but uh, how can this be problematic? How about how, if this is if this is the principle here, then how would that be problematic, David? Great. I can see that, yeah. Having been converted in a charismatic church, I can see that. Okay? What else? How else could it be problematic? Yeah, yeah. Right. It can open up all, I mean, it just opens up a lot of doors along that line, right? So it can be problematic. So we need to realize that. So that's how some would say, if it's not forbidden, it's allowable. In this area of not commanded, not forbidden. If it's not forbidden, it is allowable. Okay? Here's the other way some will go. It's the total polar opposite. If it's not commanded, it is not allowable. Okay? And so what instances of this approach come to your mind? And this is where Pam came in and mentioned hymns. There are some who would say that our non-inspired hymns are not commanded... Therefore, they are not allowable. The only thing you can sing is just inspired words of Scripture, thus the Psalms, which is interesting because they narrow it down to just 150 Psalms and forget the Habakkuk and forget 1 Samuel 22 and other places and Revelation 15 and others. Okay? But that's the other extreme. If it's not commanded, it is not allowable. Can you think of any other instances where that approach has been taken. Yeah, and church Christ background, it's exactly what we said. Because, because we got rid of the Old Testament. We only use it as an Aesop's fable. So nothing in the Old Testament applies except what is specifically restated in the New. That's how they looked at it. Therefore, no musical instruments. And this is also our friends at the Reformed Presbyterian Church in North America, why they do a cappella singing only. Because it's an odd move on their part, but they wipe out the commands from the Psalms and other places and simply go to Ephesians 5. Well, we're here to sing and make melody, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and plucking the strings of our heart, making melody with our heart. That's the only musical instrument you can use. It's commanded. That's the only one commanded. Nothing else commanded. Stop! Okay, something like that. Not making fun of them, I get their point. 
What else? What would else be? Uh, what other instances may come to mind? Interesting. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Um, that's a whole messy background of that, but it's uh, we're going to get into that a little bit today, and a little bit later if we can move on here. But that's that's a good question, huh? Yeah, it comes from prohibition. And so Welch creates grape juice, first time in world history, right? And then that takes over. But it's still a fruit of the vine. So is it allowable? Is it permissible? We'll talk about that in a moment. Okay, but that is the background, okay? Um, uh, what other instances? Uh, I think the baptism one is a great one, okay? I think that's a great one because oftentimes the, if it's not commanded, usually means show me one verse where it says that. Right? And that's where you, then you come into baptism you get a lot of problems with people. Well, no, you're right. You're right. There are some churches. My mom's church is one. that it, uh, Creeds are not commanded, so therefore they are verboten. Yeah, we have... The only creed is Jesus. The Bible. That's it. Okay. Good. So you've also gotten into some of the naughty and troublesome aspects of this. Okay. So those are two approaches that people take in reference to this, if it's not commanded nor forbidden. Any, any questions before I move on? Okay, I'm moving on. So regarding what is not commanded and forbidden, let me give you another perspective. And this, I think, begins to help us start ciphering through some of this. First off, from Scripture, we completely agree with the first and second principles. Commanded is required, forbidden is forbidden. But I like the way the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it. You're laughing at me? It is long. And I will read it for you. But this is from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, paragraph 6. And I think that it actually gives us a healthy grid to work through. Here's what it says. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture. You can see it in black and white. Or, by good and necessary consequence, may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added. So, we use deduction from Scripture. Always the rule of Scripture. We use deductive thinking from Scripture. Okay? That's why we're going to... Sometimes we're going to have to take longer periods of time making arguments because we're deducing from Scripture good and necessary consequence and so forth. Uh, and so therefore, uh, nothing is to be added by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as, we are, as they are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to what? general rules of the Word, which are always to be observed. Notice that still we're right back to Scripture. Sola Scriptura. Scripture is always the guide in faith and life. So, 
putting this together. Scripture directs by express requirements, but also Scripture directs us by good and necessary consequence, which may be deduced from Scripture. Does that make sense? Okay. I know it's like 10 o'clock in the morning and coffee's just starting to get in your veins. Further, there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church, common human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word. So can you think of um, can you think of some things that we do that are not specifically commanded in Scripture, or not necessarily deduced by good and necessary consequence, but fit into they they follow the general rules of the word, but it's kind of like the light of nature, Christian prudence, human actions in society. Yes. Yeah, our time for worship. Yeah, yeah. Time for worship. During the sermon, if you were good Eastern Orthodox, you'd stand through the whole thing. The whole service. All three hours of it. Well, it's, yeah, yeah, we could get into some, some, of the, some of the church government. Like, we use Robert's Rules of Order, right, which is not in Scripture, right? So, think about this, the sound system. You use a sound system. Yeah, the other sounds really silly, but we use a sound system. Yeah, we have, we have a raised platform. We can actually maybe go back to Ezra and Nehemiah and get some precedent from there. But we still have a sound system, just using that as an example, right? If you use a sound system, now you have mechanical um, uh, additions to the human voice as it's being proclaimed and so forth, right? That all fits. Yes? Yes! We have a church building. Nowhere commanded, for, for example, in the New Testament, we see the early church in four places in the New Testament meeting in homes, what about a building? So it's a great one. Good. Okay? So there are some aspects and circumstances that are neither commanded nor forbidden that are permissible. And the way to know what is permissible, not everything is permissible, the way to know what is permissible before God is by deducing from the good and necessary consequence of Scripture as well as circumstances that go with human and social actions, the light of nature, and Christian prudence, I wish we would emphasize this word a little bit more, Christian prudence that fit the general rules of the word. I want to give you an example here. We're going to work our way through an example. Anybody have any questions yet? Let's talk about communion. We're going to actually spend more time talking about communion later, but I'm going to use it as an illustration. The Lord's Supper. So what does the Scripture explicitly direct in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and 1 Corinthians 11 about the Lord's Supper. No! But I'll get there. I'm on your side, by the way. Yeah, word and sacrament. Yeah. Yes. Ah. Well, actually, there is a little bit in 1 Corinthians 11, so I better go with her. Yeah, yeah, I go with I would go with Emily. Hoorah! <laughs> Give me a fist bump. Yes, we win. Okay, David. Okay, but we're talking about what does Scripture explicitly direct? That's First Corinthians eleven. Yes, yes. So that's a good one. So there's got to be real communion in the church as we take communion, right? That's a great example. Okay? If you don't, you're eating and drinking judgment to yourself, not discerning the body. 
Right, very good. So, bread and wine, right? Jesus' words, this is my body, this is my blood, given for you. Um, we can, we can, yeah, we can make that by good and necessary deduction, I think, yes. But, as in distributed, how is it distributed? There's a great example, we'll get there in a minute. I know, now... But there's still an ordained minister that's involved in getting that set up. So, so what does Scripture expressly direct? So you have those things, yes. Yes, they were gathered around Jesus having the meal. Yes. Right. Okay, so... Is there anything Scripture specifically forbids that has to do with communion? Yep, taking unworthily. It's what David was talking about. Specifically, their unworthily is actually uh, the wealthier eating it and telling the, the poor, go get your own, creating this division over different uh, lines, economic lines within the church and so forth. And that feeds into lots of things, okay? Uh, anything else? Scripture specifically fit, forbids in reference to communion. Getting drunk. Eating till you're just out to here at communion. You have to remember there was a meal that this all participated in. Okay? Right, good. So what is neither commanded nor forbidden but might fit under the category of what I'm calling authorized permission? Unleavened bread, yeah, okay. Individual cups or one cup, yeah. Okay, it's possible going either direction. Okay, what else? And if you, by the way, if you ever use one cup, it better be 19-proof port on the inside, and it better be a metal cup because all of that will kill bacteria like that. Better than Lysol. If it's grape juice and it's in a porcelain cup, don't touch it. It is from the devil. I didn't say that. I'm sorry. Okay, sorry. Yes. What else? What else is? What else is neither commanded nor forbidden, but might fit under the category of authorized permission? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Staying with inside the boundaries, we did something different. You came forward, right? You remember that? We all came forward. We didn't do one cup, but we all came forward. There were reasons for that. It all fits. Actually, traditionally, it's that's the Presbyterian way is you actually go forward, just like Anglicans and Lutherans, okay? And so, uh, but however we do that, it's that it's being done. And it is word and sacrament. That's another aspect of this that's got to be there too. So anything, anything else you can think of before we move on? Oh, don't get me started in tension. Yeah, good. Yeah, so scripture, that's a great example. Scripture never, and this is why this is this principle is important. Scripture never anywhere commands that it be done weekly or as often as you get together. It never specifically comes right out and commands it. That's the practice we see. Now, why would Scripture not command it? Because there will be situations where the church could get together but not be able to have communion for various reasons. So, 
when a church has communion like my mom's church once a year, I mean, really? But it's okay. It fits within the biblical standard. The churches that have no communion, I'm wagging my finger at them, right? The churches that do it once a quarter, well, unfortunately, that's what John Calvin caved into with his city council was to do it once a quarter. He wanted to do it once a week, okay? But he gave in to once a quarter, which became the reigning paradigm, for example, with Presbyterians for forever and ever and ever until this last few decades, okay? Once a month, that's the way it was. We were Midland when I first got to Midland. We were doing it once a month. All that is more, it still fits, but it kind of fits into kind of the preferences aspect in practice, depending on the situation and so forth, okay? It's still allowable, but because it fits within the regulation or the, 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 the guidelines. Does that make sense? So I'm not mad when somebody's church doesn't take communion once a week, okay? I love us taking it once a week. I'm going to make a strong case for it when we finally get to the subject of communion specifically, all right? But it's not the end of war. If I, but if you were in the Church of Christ, when I was in the Church of Christ, which is still, would be still the same thing they would say today, any church not having communion once a week is going to hell in a handbasket. Because they didn't do it. Because it's commanded, and it's not commanded anywhere to do it once a week. Okay? But they would, they would make it salvific. Okay? And then it's all the light. Yeah. And probably before that one, it was at 25th and Chartel. I bet you it was probably once a quarter. Was it? Yeah. Because that was pretty much the standard throughout Baptist, Presbyterian, everybody. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, that would some, be something we'd have to talk about more. And we may try to, if, if you remind me, we, we will talk about it when I talk more about communion. Okay? It does fit because it depends on what they're thinking about 1 Corinthians 11. So my LCMS, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod friends, I know that if I ever go to their church, and I've gone a few times, I know they cannot give me communion because I'm not, I'm a Presbyterian, I'm not a Lutheran, and so I don't ever ask them. I mean, I'm going to make them change their stuff just for me. It's kind of silly. But I understand why they do that. I don't agree with it, but I understand, and they're trying to be faithful to Scripture. I appreciate that a lot. Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Not ELCA. And it depends... Yes. That's the pastor not letting anybody above him know that. But their official doctrine is, their official standard is none. So yes. Yeah, yeah. But I appreciate why they do that. I understand why they do that. And so, but, but I'm not getting into that at this point, okay? All right. Anybody else? We need to move on. All right. So, um, the first principle... Of the regular principle of worship is that what is commanded is required. The second is what is forbidden is forbidden. Um, the third one is the, what I've called the authorized permission. Uh, aspects and circumstances that are neither commanded nor forbidden but are deduced from the good and necessary consequence of Scripture as well as circumstances that go with human and social actions, the light of nature, the Christian prudence, all of which must fit the general rules of the Word. Okay? 
So I don't know if that helps you any. It helps me a lot because it gives me something to hang all that on. Um, any questions up to this point? Any disagreements, consternations, conflagrations, discombobulations, cognitive dissonance, anything? Okay. All right, so there's the principle. We're going to move on then next week, if I can get the next slide. We will look at, next week, we'll start with united prayers, vocal prayers, responsive readings. Why do, we, why do you do that? I mean, that's what the Catholics do for crying out. That's what the Anglicans do. Why do you do it? Okay, so we're going to talk about it from Scripture. Okay, that's our, that's our standard. We're going to come from there and go from that. And then we'll probably, if we have time, we'll go into bodies. Okay, I'll probably put those two together if I can. But that's what will be next week. So please, please, please invite people who've been visiting our church. Invite them to come and say, hey, you got to get into this class. It's really awesome. We have fun. And sometimes Emily and Pastor Mike agree, and sometimes they don't agree. All right, anybody else before we end? That was a joke, by the way. All right, let's pray. Lord God in heaven, thank you so much that you do, you do, you do want us to draw near. And you have opened the way through your Son, Jesus Christ, for us to come close. And you've set it all up for us, Lord. Forgive us for the times that we've tried to do our own thing like Adam and Eve in the garden. Like Jeroboam. Like others, Lord. Help us to always draw close to you in the way that truly, is, as the writer of Hebrews puts it, was acceptable, is acceptable to you with reverence and awe. Because you deserve the reverence and awe. And we are grateful we have this entrance and access. We pray that you be with us now as we gather in the great assembly this morning and that you would guide us, you would fill us with your spirit, that we'd be filled with joy and trust and faith and that we would be, um, we would draw together as a communion of saints, drawing together at the foot of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.